Right now, many companies are rethinking how they connect with their customers online. This makes the role of developers who build these digital experiences more important than ever. But a lot of business leaders don't know how to unlock their dev team's full potential. In Ask Your Developer, Twilio CEO Jeff Lawson shows you how. To get a copy of the book, head to askyourdeveloper.com. Coming up today, we explain why benefits of microdosing might only be a placebo effect and find out how a bunch of deepfakes could one day replace the cast of The Simpsons. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me on a slightly new lick show this week are Matt Reynolds. Hello. Amit Koala. Hello. And Vicky Turk. Hi. And Homer Simpson, apparently. We'll find out more about that a little bit later on. This was the week when the UK Treasury announced that the limit on contactless payment tech would increase from £45 to £100 later this year. Less than a year ago, the limit was just £30, but the pandemic has created a surge in businesses accepting contactless payments for public health reasons. And it was also the week when Amazon opened its first contactless shop in the UK. The Amazon Fresh store in Ealing in London is open to anyone with an Amazon account and the app on their phone, which they scan to gain entry. Once inside, shoppers just scan the goods they want and leave without going to a checkout and the bill is charged to their Amazon account directly. We've inadvertently made it look like it was a huge week for contactless technology there. Um, Never mind. Other things did happen this week. Please check your favourite news provider. Let's get on to the fact then. What did we learn this week? Amit, I'll start with you. I learned that the Pyrenean ibex is the only animal that's ever gone extinct twice. Uh, The ibex, which is a type of wild goat, once roamed across what is now northern Spain, but the last of its kind died in the year 2000. But in 2003, scientists created a cloned ibex from some tissue that they'd sampled from the last living ibex to bring the species back from extinction. But sadly, the cloned animal died a few minutes after being born, sending the ibex, perennial ibex, back into extinction for a second time. Would you like to uh, give a plug to where you got that fact from, Amit? I would. That fact is from a great video on the Wired UK YouTube channel exploring what would happen if we could bring extinct animals back from the dead. It's a really, really fascinating watch, so do go check it out. It's such a crazy moment in the story that plays out through that video you know they bring this animal back from the dead and they're like oh a a few minutes later it died but the the strangeness the power of human beings to make something go extinct once then through scientific ingenuity bring it back and then it dies again but as you say it's a really really fascinating video do go check it out vicky what did you learn this week i have an animal related fact too actually and This is one of those that maybe everyone else knows and I just never really thought about, Um, but it kind of blew my mind a little bit when I realised it. Um, So you know that humans have baby teeth and then they fall out and then you get adult teeth. Well, this is by no means unique to us at all. In fact, it's the same for dogs. It's the same for cats. Almost every mammal has a set of baby baby teeth, which then fall out before they get their big teeth. So when you're kind of like walking in the forest and stuff, there might be like a bunch of little baby teeth everywhere. 
something to look out for while you're yeah. going on your government mandated daily walk. I just hadn't thought about it before. Well, I guess why would you? Um, but there we go. <laughs> um, so we've made some small changes to the show um, this week. Two presenters, uh, Matt Reynolds and I, are going to be running the show this week and we'll have a rotating cast. And we're going to be spending a bit more time talking about the stories that we bring on to the show each and every week. So rather than doing three stories a week, we're going to be doing two. We hope that gives you lots more detail on the stories that we've been reporting over the past week. So let us know what you think of the changes. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on anything about the show this week. The stories, the formats, do get in touch. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Our first story this week is about microdosing, when people take tiny amounts of psychedelic drugs on a regular basis. Vicky, you've been covering microdosing for a few years now, and way back in 2018, you reported on the beginning of a couple of trials that hoped to uncover what was really going on when people microdose. Now, before we get to the results of one of those studies, can you tell us what we know right now about microdosing? So what are people doing when they microdose and why are they doing it? Right. Well, you're right, Matt. Um, So microdosing is basically regularly taking tiny amounts of psychedelic drugs. So that could be something like LSD or psilocybin, which you get from magic mushrooms. Um, And when I say a small amount, I mean like a really small amount, about a tenth of what you might consider a full dose. So if you were, you know, trying to have a real trip, you'd take much more. And it's been a bit of a niche trend for, for decades, really. But in the past five to 10 years, it's become a bit more of a phenomenon, at least if you look at the press coverage, it's become a bit of a, a sort of trend. Why people do it? Well, the idea isn't really to get high per se, but to gain some sort of psychological or cognitive edge. Different people cite a wide range of benefits that they claim microdoses, microdosing brings to them. Some people say it makes them more focused. Some people says, say it makes them happier or more creative. One trend is using it as a sort of productivity tool. Um, and you hear about this sometimes among kind of Silicon Valley types who are into this. Um, they say, you know, it, it, it makes them able to do more. They think more creatively, perhaps a bit like you might use caffeine or something like that. And some people turn to microdosing in an attempt to self-medicate issues that they have, maybe uh, depression or anxiety, things like that. It's a really wide range of things that people claim, but it's all totally anecdotal. Like you say, Vicky, the problem really is, is that almost everything we know about microdosing so far comes from the people who are taking the drugs, which is great, but it's not exactly the most scientifically accurate source of information. And there are a couple of reasons for this. So psychedelics are controlled substances in most countries. In fact, when LSD was made illegal in the UK and the US in the late 1960s, research into them really trickled to a complete standstill. Now that's slowly changing, but it's still really difficult for researchers to get funding and ethical approval for trials on psychedelics, particularly if they're looking at the effect of recreational use. Now, to really work out if a drug is having an effect, the best kind of study is something called placebo-controlled, a placebo-controlled trial. In those studies, some people are given the drug being investigated, in this case some psychedelic, and some are given a placebo, which is just a substance that has no active ingredients. So the researchers can compare the two groups and work out whether the drug being investigated is having an effect. It's exactly the same kind of study that's been used to validate all these COVID-19 vaccines we have around right now. Placebo trials are great for scientists, they're really the gold standard, but they're also really expensive. So they haven't been used to investigate microdosing 
until recently, that is. There's one trial from Imperial College London that did use placebo controls to investigate microdosing. Yeah, that's right. So there's a few lab-based placebo-controlled microdosing studies, and there are some more being done. Uh, but you're right that they tend to be very restricted in terms of, you know, what they can do, how many participants they can have. They're hugely expensive. It's difficult. Even getting these drugs into the kind of lab-controlled standard that you need is very tricky. You need to specially make them. So these researchers from Imperial College came up with a different idea of how to do a placebo-controlled trial remotely with volunteers taking part at home. They went out to people who already microdose or who were planning to do so and asked them basically to do what they were going to do anyway, but to follow a protocol while they did it. So here's how it worked. They asked the volunteers to prepare their microdoses and put them into opaque pill capsules. They also prepared some empty capsules. So those were the placebos. They then instructed them to group the capsules together in a certain way and put them into a series of envelopes with QR codes on them, mix them up and select some of the envelopes at semi-random. They were sort of given a routine to follow. And what they ended up with was some volunteers taking microdoses for four weeks, some taking placebos for four weeks and some taking two weeks of each. But the important thing is that the volunteers didn't know which they were taking At the end of the trial, the QR codes on the envelopes acted as a sort of key to say which it was. And this is quite remarkable, especially if you're a little bit of a a nerd like me. And I think you, Vicky, doing a placebo trial in people's own homes where you're really letting them deliver the placebo to themselves is pretty, pretty interesting and a really kind of different way to try and get this information that otherwise might be very, very difficult to extract. And it also means that we should finally have some at least initial answers about the effect that microdosing has on people. So what did the researchers find out? They measured quite a few different things. Um, They asked people to complete surveys about different aspects of their psychological state. um, And they checked in with them on, you know, days that they took a dose, weekly and monthly. They also did some cognitive tasks to try and get a more objective measure of, you know, was this giving any cognitive benefit? The most interesting finding is probably what they found looking at the accumulative effects overall. So comparing how people scored at the end of the four weeks of the trial compared to their baseline at the start. And they found that all psychological aspects improved for those in the microdosing group. But there's a catch because they also improved for those in the placebo group. So the researchers conclude from this that the anecdotal benefits of microdosing can be explained by the placebo effect. Now, one thing that lead author Balash Shigeti told me was that he found particularly convincing to suggest that this was a placebo effect is that when they asked participants whether they thought they'd taken a placebo or a microdose, they found that people scored better on those psychological measures when they thought they'd taken a microdose, regardless of whether they actually had. So there was less difference between those who thought they'd taken a microdose and actually had and those who thought they'd taken a microdose and actually hadn't than between those who had actually taken one and either thought that they had or hadn't. So he concludes that, you know, expectations over what benefits you're going to get play a big role in the effects that you actually end up experiencing and reporting. Before we completely write off microdosing and put it in the, oh, that's just down to the placebo effect box, even though, as I think we'll get on to, Vicky, that's not necessarily a bad thing at all. 
we should remember this is just one study and we still don't really know a whole bunch about how microdosing works and there's lots of conflicting evidence out there. So there's another placebo trial which was led by Kim Kuipers at Maastricht University in the Netherlands and that found that microdoses of between 5 and 20 micrograms of LSD had beneficial effects on the mood and attention for some participants and those effects weren't explained by this placebo effect. Another study found evidence of brain-derived neurotropic factor BD, or it's called BDNF, which is a protein linked to brain plasticity, and it found that that kind of appeared in the blood a few hours after microdosing. Now, although this study wasn't able to link this finding to any measures of well-being or cognition, it suggests that maybe there's something else that's going on that might not just be explained by the placebo effect. When you take all this evidence together, we're kind of where we started right at the beginning of this section. We don't know a whole bunch about microdosing or the effect that it has. Yeah, I mean, that's how science works, right? You can't really come to conclusive evidence based off one study or even a few studies. And that's particularly the case with research on microdosing because there's so little of it. And also because the whole point is that the effects of microdosing are supposed to be barely perceptible. So, you know, it's very difficult to measure something that you're you're expecting to be almost not there. It's also really difficult to compare across the few studies that have been done because there's very little standardization. There's not even any consensus on how much a microdose is. And obviously that could change person to person if you're a different weight or something like that. Um, there's different things that people are using to test the effects as well, different measures, different cognitive tests, that kind of thing. And even the timing of when you do it, whether it's, you know, an hour, two hour, four hours, six hours after someone's taken that dose could affect what your results are. Some of the research that's out there as well suggests that there could be a lot of variability between individuals. And that could actually explain perhaps why the benefits that people report are so varied. Maybe, you know, what happens for one person isn't representative of what could happen for everyone else. And certainly the imperial study, which we've been talking about, although it's very innovative in its diet design, it does have a lot of limitations as a result. You know, the people aren't coming into the lab. You can't really control the environment that much. You're trusting them to do it themselves. And also they, they had to provide their own drugs. They probably got them off the black market. Um, so they could be getting all sorts of different things and different amounts that they're choosing to take. The advantage of it is that you do get a much higher number of participants than other other studies have been able to do. But you do have more room for noise because of those variables that you can't control. And I think as you alluded to, Matt, it is also really important to acknowledge that saying something is caused by the placebo effect doesn't mean it's not real. It doesn't mean that the people didn't feel these effects or that they weren't as strong as they were. They're not lying about what they feel. It just means that it's maybe not caused pharmacologically. It's linked to people's expectations. If you expect something to happen, you might well feel that it does. Um, but it, this doesn't necessarily take away from the beneficial effects that people are reporting. If they're saying that they felt those effects, then we have no reason to believe that they didn't. They probably did. It's just looking at what might be the underlying mechanism to cause that. And of course, taking slightly different trial approaches might yield us some new answers. So 
one way to control for that expectancy effect is to tell people that they may not just get a psychedelic or placebo, but they might be getting a tranquilizer or stimulant or alcohol. So that way, instead of expecting to feel they'll be able to concentrate more, maybe they'll think, oh, maybe I'll be sleepy or yeah, they won't know exactly what type of ex- effect to expect. And so you can kind of negate that effect slightly. We also might want to look at whether microdosing could help people who already have negative experiences, either with their mental health or cognition, which are two really common reasons why people choose to microdose. At the moment, the people in these trials are usually healthy volunteers who think that microdosing has benefits for them. And they not be, might not be the most useful people to study. These healthy people who are already predisposed to you know, believe in microdosing, well, they're quite likely to say it works for them. Well, getting on to those people, Vicky, what do people who are into microdosing make of these results from Imperial? Is it going to stop any of them from using psychedelics? I think most of them probably won't care too much. As you point out, it's a highly self-selecting group uh, that were involved in this study because of the nature of the study and how people were recruited. Um, And I think most people will probably continue, you know, if they feel the benefits, why why would they stop doing it? Um, Even if it might not be exactly um, caused exactly by the effect that they think it is. Um, you know, if if you're convinced about something, then I'm not sure one study would change your mind. If, if you know, some people are really scientifically minded and maybe they do come to the same conclusions as the author studies, there is a bit of a, a sort of um, effect that could happen where it could diminish their ability to get a placebo effect because if their expectations are altered by reading the study, that might then, um, you know, inhibit their ability to, to enjoy the, the placebo effect. So that's a bit of a funny possible outcome. But for most people, I don't think it will, will change anything. Um, I think speaking to uh, Balash, the author on the study, he said that, you know, he has heard some hints of disappointment from some people in the community, many of whom thought this was, you know, an opportunity to prove that this wasn't a, a placebo effect. So they're a little disappointed with the results. But, you know, that's that's just what happens when, when you run experiments. Um, and what I thought was really interesting was some of the volunteers were really quite blown away with how strong the placebo effect is. So Balash got emails from people who had taken part uh, and who were told that they'd been in after the fact they were told they'd been in the placebo group Um, and some people emailed him saying oh I think you must have made a mistake because I'm really certain that I wasn't in the placebo group I was microdosing so he asked them he said you know well why don't you just open up the leftover capsules that you have and then you could see and they found out that no there had been no mistake and they'd been taking placebos Uh, so one participant quoted in the study said I've just checked the remaining envelopes and it appears that I was indeed taking placebos throughout the trial. I'm quite astonished. It seems I was able to generate a powerful altered consciousness experience based only on the expectation around the possibility of a microdose. And another wrote, you put spirituality into an empty pill here. Wow. So I think that just goes to show how, you know, the placebo effect can be very effective. Putting microdosing to one side just a final thought on this the possibilities of doing trials of this nature with with people administering treatment at home rather than having to come into a clinical lab that surely opens up lots of interesting possibilities for other kinds of research right 
Yeah, it's definitely something that the researchers are hoping to explore moving forward, you know, not necessarily even just with psychedelics, but with all sorts of different things. It's a much easier, cheaper way to get lots of people involved in a study if you're wanting to collect lots of data about people's experiences. Obviously, it does have those drawbacks of not being as controlled as in the lab. Um, But sometimes getting that more, um, you know, naturalistic setting could be an advantage. So it's definitely something that the researchers are exploring using moving forward. It's a really, really interesting study with some, for some, quite confusing outcomes. Podcast at wired.co.uk. If you've been microdosing, if you've been reading the results of this study and questioning um, what you come to believe, do let us know. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that story or anything else that we talk about on the show this week. Our second story, Amit, you've disappeared down a little bit of a rabbit hole with The Simpsons. Yeah, that's right, James. So recently, last week, I think it was, I saw a story about The Simpsons bringing back the character Edna Krabappel for for a one-off farewell. So this is uh, Bart's teacher. The character was retired in 2013 after the death of the voice actor Marsha Wallace, uh, but the producers brought her back for a recent episode for a short speaking role, uh, and they did this by kind of splicing lines together from previous recordings that she'd been on, just to like give the character an opportunity to kind of say farewell and all this kind of stuff. But it got me thinking about whether technology might offer a kind of more flexible option to bring back old characters or maybe even recast characters for a show like The Simpsons in future. So naturally, Amit, your brain went to the furthest possible solution from reality, which is to replace squidgy humans with artificial intelligence. Yeah, that's right. The the show often jokes about the replaceability of voice actors in animation, but as it pushes through into its fourth decade, it's those voices that could pose the biggest threat to the continued kind of existence of The Simpsons. You know, the actors who play a lot of the kind of most famous characters are approaching retirement age. They're in their 60s or 70s. Uh, and they might soon decide that they don't want to do it anymore. And they, they certainly don't need the money, you know, between fees for new episodes and residuals for repeats of old episodes. They're sitting on kind of tens of millions of dollars. Uh, in 2015, Harry Shearer, who plays um, Smithers, Mr. Burns, Otto, and a bunch of other kind of background characters, tried to leave the show after Fox cut the actor's pay by 25% uh, down to $300,000 an episode rather than $400,000 an episode. But even he eventually kind of relented and signed on again. But, you know, this is a problem that the show is facing. And I was wondering whether people could use AI to basically step in and fill the role if the voice actors decide to leave. You could see why it would be really compelling for Fox, right? If it's paying a cast of characters hundreds of thousands of dollars per episode. And this is really a problem that very long-running animated shows have created. And I suppose The Simpsons is the best example of that. This is now entering its fourth decade on screens, as you say, which is kind of remarkable to think. And it's a problem that they're going to have to solve. There will come a point where naturally people in their 60s and 70s get into their 80s and 90s and they pass away and i'm watching the simpsons recently which i don't tend to do anymore because it's kind of rubbish but some of the voices particularly marge's voice is now almost unrecognizable from what it was during the show's golden years in the early mid 90s She, she sounds old because she is but in the show she hasn't aged a day So are people actually taking the idea of replacing the human actors with AI seriously? So there's no suggestion that Fox are planning to do this, but there are a bunch of people that are trying to do it kind of for entertainment value. So I found, uh, I started digging into this kind of AI Simpsons rabbit hole and I found a YouTube channel called Speaking of AI. Um, It's run by a guy called Tim McSmithers, who is a British guy living in Canada. 
who is now an AI researcher and an audio producer. So on his YouTube channel, which is called Speaking of AI, he recasts a kind of iconic scene. So there's a scene from Notting, Notting Hill where he's used AI to kind of recast Homer Simpson in the Julia Roberts role. Uh, he uses AI to make Donald Trump say lines that were originally said by Ralph Wiggum on The Simpsons, and, and Joe Biden takes over lines from Grandpa Simpson in some iconic scenes. Um, so he's been to build this like generic model that can basically yeah, recreate Simpsons voices, uh, and it's trained on data. So he has built like a generic model for the English language so that he can type in anything in text and it will be read out by this model and then once he's got that model he can then tune it to make specific voices so with two or three hours of audio of you know a character like homer simpson speaking he can tune the model and teach the model what makes homer sound like homer the model then generates multiple takes of whatever you tell it to say and you can choose the best one um he thinks that you could make a convincing version of the simpsons using this technology although it would be quite fiddly and um, he actually made the intro that we played at the start of the episode. So if you if you heard that and you thought, hey, that's Homer Simpson, then that's uh, speaking of AI's uh, artificial intelligence model doing its work. Now, we all heard that. Did anyone here think that that sounded like Homer Simpson? Do, do be kind. Matt? I was actually impressed by it. I thought that the intonation was... It felt like he paused a little bit strangely in... Uh, you know, as he was speaking. But then Homer always had quite an odd way of speaking anyway. But I thought the actual tone of the voice itself was quite remarkable. I thought, you know, having been brought up listening to Microsoft Sam and you know, pretty rubbish versions of AI voices, I was pretty impressed with that, actually. Amit, what did, what did you think of it? Because you played around with various versions of these sort of deep fake voices. And this was one of the better ones that you were able to come across, right? Yeah, I think it was the best Homer that I heard. There's a few different ones online. Uh, it sounded like Homer reading out something that he didn't quite understand the meaning of. It was quite contextless and quite kind of emotionally flat. But I think as a proof of concept, it's really, really interesting. And you can tune and, and tweak it and pick the best takes to to make the show that you wanted to make, I guess. That's really interesting, right? It almost becomes a toy. We've got this AI that can do a thing in a quite a basic way quite well. How can we elevate the intelligence of that AI so that it does have that emotion and it does speak like a human being speaks? Um, it, it's kind of funny to imagine playing with it almost like an instrument, right? So is that what McSmithers is in this for? Is it a bit of a game for him or is there something more serious going on here? So it's it's, it's what he does full time. He tends to use it for... Uh, entertainment purposes so on his youtube channel he kind of i think he monetizes it through that so by making these kind of funny videos with you know donald trump saying things that donald trump would never say or i'm trying to think of an example of what that might be but um you know kind of people he's got like joe biden as grandpa simpson and all this kind of like amusing stuff um so mainly for fun but there are companies monetizing this as well doing similar things so there's a british startup called Synantic and an australian startup called replica studios and they're really really targeting games so they have got these kind of uh, they work with voice actors and they make these kind of artificial voices, not of famous people. They're not trying to replicate Homer Simpson, but they're trying to give people making games a kind of broad range of voices that they can then use to kind of procedurally generate um, audio for games so that they don't have to record everything. And it's mainly being used for the workflow. When you're producing a game and you want to see how something might sound in the final game, like a different line, you want to try out different alternative lines, you don't want to have to get the voice actors in every time to record all the different options. You can use this AI to act as a stand-in almost in the same way that on a movie studio, you might use a stand-in to kind of do the, the scene structure and things like that before you bring the big name actor out of their trailer to do the shoot. 
use this AI voice as a stand-in so that you can nail the line and then you get the actor to read out the final line when you're ready. So it's not a replacement, it's just being used as a tool, which is probably an implementation of AI that we're all a lot more comfortable with. And fundamentally, the reason that it isn't a replacement is because it isn't good enough. But that's not to say that it might not be in just a few short years. I think a lot of people that are listening to the podcast this week might have seen deep fake Tom Cruise on TikTok over the last few days. And it, it's almost impossible to believe that that isn't Tom Cruise. But it isn't. But it is the result of quite a lot of work and money by a whole team of people to make something that is that believable. So what work needs to be done to make these AI deepfake voices more believable? What's the thing that's missing? Yeah, we're not talking about like a paradigm shift or, you know, a brand new technology that needs to be developed here. It's, it's basically about training data. So what I was talking earlier about emotional resonance, what Replica and Synantic do is they do different recordings of actors with different emotions and then they can kind of build this into their model and say okay we want a, a reading that's 80 percent angry 20 percent sarcastic or you know 50 percent sad 50 percent amused and and they can they do this it's just about feeding the model with as much data as possible and a, a good illustration of how fast things are moving in this field is that the amount of training data required for these models has decreased drastically over the last few years so you know from 30 to 50 hours a few years ago now down to just 10 or 20 minutes um Replica Studios actually has a voice generation model on its website that can be trained to recreate anyone's voice simply by being fed recordings of them reading out 20 short but specific sentences. And you decided to try this out yourself, right? We've got Homer to do it. So let's hear what deep fake Amit sounds like. Yeah, here we go. So I've been playing this all week uh, to my own personal amusement. So this is this is me, which was made, again, just to, to stress, this was made from me reading out 20 short sentences. It took me probably 10 minutes to do this, and here is what it sounds like. Hello, everyone. This is Deepfake Amit on the Wired UK podcast. I was made from a selection of 20 short sentences, and I am an example of how artificial intelligence could change audio production for television shows, films, and games. It's slightly creepy, Amit. I don't, I don't want to be mean to, to Deepfake Amit. It's kind of got the vibe of someone maybe introducing a murder mystery drama on a radio station late at night. It's, it's the intonations off, right? I, I actually did record it in the middle of the night with all the lights off, so maybe that's, uh, that's the, uh, <laughs> the issue. Um, but it's not far away, right? Do, I mean, I'd be interested to know, do you think that if you heard that in isolation and it didn't identify itself, would you be able to peg that as supposed to be my voice? I think it, it sounds like you putting on a bit of a silly voice, but yeah, it 100% sounds like you. And I certainly wouldn't have guessed that it only took a couple of minutes of your time and 20 sentences to get something that sounds that close to your own voice. Vicky, what did you think of it? I did think it was a little bit Uncanny Valley, you know, that where it's it does sound like Amit, but there's something a bit off that you can't pin your finger on. And I think you're right, it's maybe the intonation. It, it, it sounded like... Amit reading out something like reading out a series of words he'd never seen before so <laughs> you know what I mean so there was like e equal weight given to like each word rather than a naturalistic like emotional sense through it yeah I think that's that's absolutely right so we've we've heard the best that the technology can do to a degree so is it worth it is this something that is legitimately gonna replace voice actors in The Simpsons? Or is it just way too expensive to take it from what we've heard today to something that is believable and doesn't sound creepy? It's not so much the expense. I mean, you know, that voice 
again, if I if I spent more time training it, it would get better and better and better. And, and yeah, it's probably never going to be as fluent or as emotional as my actual voice, but it would be a lot better. I think the, the issue is that it would be quite faffy to actually make an episode of The Simpsons using AI because you'd have to generate multiple takes for each line, cut them all together, and it would take longer to, say, dial up the anger in a particular reading on an AI than it would to just ask Dan Castellaneta, who plays Homer, to just do that take again a bit more angry. And, you know, even if the voice actors on The Simpsons do leave, um, it's probably cheaper for them to just hire kind of a Homer Simpson impressionist rather than trying to bring in an AI, I think. I was going to say that you'd expect even someone that can do a very good Homer Simpson impression to be able to respond better to feedback, right? You say, give me that line with a bit more emotion, give me that line with a bit more humour, rather than sitting there twiddling the knobs on an AI that might not respond in quite the way you expect it to. So maybe there's a case here where it's going to take human beings a bit more time to learn how to control the AI and the AI a bit more time to learn how to sound more like human beings. But that doesn't mean that in the interim this can't be used in the real world, but maybe not in TV and films, perhaps in big open world video games, right? Yeah, so I kind of alluded to this earlier. So voice generation technology is being used for those big games where there's hundreds of characters and, you know, they've all got lines to interact with, but they're not kind of, you're not following a story all the way through. So, you know, you don't really want to spend loads of time recording different audio options for for characters that only a handful of players might ever interact with. So... Synantic is working with Obsidian Games, who make Fallout and The Outer Worlds. Replica has a number of AAA uh, and indie game studios as clients. And it, it gives studios the option to create a much wider range of conversations instead of characters being limited to saying things that are recorded by a voice actor in a studio. And if you um, combine that with something like GPT-3 that can generate text and do kind of a call and response thing, you could actually have you know, genuine-ish conversations with these things in audio, which is quite interesting. And that's always something that in very, very ambitious, big open world games can kind of break the illusion that you're in a real world, right? You walk up to someone and they can only say, I can't talk right now in a slightly dodgy Z-list voice actor kind of way. But it might find more immediate applications, certainly um, more straightforward applications in, in games like FIFA, where customization has come in visually. You can create a version of yourself and become a star striker for Man United or whatever, but the game won't be able to say your name. This could make that happen. Yeah, this this is this is what immediately my mind immediately jumped to when I was talking to developers about this stuff, uh, partly because I only play FIFA because I'm very basic and partly because my name is not the kind of name that you really tend to get <laughs> in the kind of custom options on a lot of video games. So, you know, could this technology be used to make the commentator say your actual name when you score a goal in FIFA rather than, you know, Ahmed or whatever one of the kind of pre-recorded options is. Um, Replica actually made a cyberpunk mod that lets you change the main character's name in that game and then applies that change to all the characters that you interact with using this technology so that when you meet a character in the street, they call you by this new name that you've chosen rather than the pre-recorded option, which I think is a really, really fascinating use of this technology. And if it's used well, you wouldn't even notice, right? You'd just be wandering around and there's this clever little bit of AI trickery going on that just makes that game world a little bit more believable. But to bring it back to The Simpsons, I think we've made it fairly clear that this isn't something that's going to happen in the short term. And there's another reason why this area is particularly tricky. It's the thrilling world of copyright and lawyers. 
Yeah, I asked a couple of lawyers about what the legalities of Fox trying to make a deepfake version of its voice cast. If, say, say the voice cast decided to leave for whatever reason and Fox was like, OK, well, we're just going to make an IA version of you and carry on the show. What would happen from a legal perspective? And there's a whole mess of different laws governing kind of copyright, the right to publicity, the actor's contracts. There's the huge mess of different things. And it's really, really complex. Um, there's actually an interesting kind of test case for this. So in 1993, um, two actors from Cheers, uh, George Went and John Ratzenberger, sued Paramount, the studio, because they used the likeness of the actors to make robotic versions of those characters, which were positioned in airport bars all around America, um, which is a bizarre thing that I wish happened more often. Can you, can you imagine going to the bar and there's just an animatronic uh, Cheers character sitting there kind of waving at you? Um, the actors argue basically that the right to publicity which is enshrined in state law in the US, gave them control of their own image, whereas the studio Paramount argued that federal copyright law gave them the right to create derivative works based on the sitcom Cheers. Uh, And the case kind of dragged through the courts for eight years, going back and forth between different decisions, different courts, and then eventually, uh, in 2001, the studio eventually settled for an undisclosed fee. So that's just a kind of taster of the sort of legal drama that's unwaiting to be unleashed as this technology develops. And it's not a problem that's going to go away, right? The the reason that you got onto this story is that this is going to become a problem in just a few years. It might not be actors in key roles saying, I quit, I don't want $400,000 an episode. It might be those actors passing away. And unless they can find someone who's willing to take up the role as an impersonator, then it might be the case that they turn to AI to keep The Simpsons going. But a final question, Amit, both of us are big fans of The Simpsons, or, or used to be, right? In, in my mind, it died at season 11 and has never been worth watching since. So there is an argument that if you're getting into discussions about finding impersonators and even using AI to replace characters who pass away, that maybe it's time to put The Simpsons to bed once and for all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's been on air for our entire lives. And uh, I think, oddly, you know, if they... If they changed the voice actors to AI, that wouldn't actually be the biggest departure from... That wouldn't be the biggest change that's happened since the show was good, basically. You know, people criticise the show for kind of being this Frankenstein version of the thing that was such a cultural phenomenon in the 90s and, you know, the funniest thing on TV and one of the best animated shows ever made. And now it's this kind of Frankenstein show that looks and sounds like The Simpsons but isn't The Simpsons. You know, it's a, a show that's kind of struggling to recapture its soul even now with the same people playing those roles. So if you replaced it with, replaced those people with AI, then I don't really know what you've got left other than something that kind of looks uh, warm and rich and human and, and funny and is actually just kind of a, a, a shell with, with nothing inside. And as you say, you could get an AI to write the script as well and then an AI to animate it so you wouldn't need human beings involved at all. Yeah, exactly. You don't even need anyone. You can just feed all 32 Simpsons seasons of The Simpsons into a big machine and then uh, see what comes out the other end and then slap it on air. I'm sure someone at Fox is uh, writing, writing notes as we speak about this. We'll take a cut of the profits, Fox. Podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to send Amit um, any contracts for ideas for keeping The Simpsons running as a long-form AI project. What do you think of the future of, of animation? Are we all going to be sitting down to watch AI-powered episodes of The Simpsons in the near future, or is this one innovative step too far? Podcast at Wired. 
www.thinkandgrowthpodcast.co.uk. Time for a couple of your emails before we wrap up the show this week. Vicky, you've got one from Fergal. Yeah, Fergal writes in about a story we had on the podcast quite a while ago now about uh, music and algorithms driving the music that we listen to, selecting the songs that we listen to, to the point that uh, we're not choosing it ourselves anymore at all. Um, And we were talking about how can you break out of that feedback loop and actually discover new music again. So Fergal suggests Hype Machine. Uh, an amazing website and app that picks music from music blogs, so constantly updates and is great for hipsters too, if that's your jam, as music appears on there before anywhere else. Uh, Fergal says it's way easier than trying to game Spotify and it's a good site to support. Thanks for the suggestion, Fergal, for those people who are trying to get away from their uh, algorithmic overlords. That's another resource you might want to check out. I've actually gone away since we talked about this on the podcast a little while ago and subscribed to a really, really good newsletter called Flow State, um, Ah, which lands in your inbox. Yeah, Um, it's a specific kind of music Um, It's for for concentration. If you're sitting at a desk all day at home and finding it difficult to focus, it's in the name, right? Lands in your inbox every day. You can pay to subscribe and support it if you so wish, but you can get links out to Spotify and YouTube music playlists and it gives you something different in your inbox every day, which is human curated. So maybe that's a Another option people might like to look at if they really, really love electronica and noise music, if you, know, if you do. Um, one more email from Afro who writes in about Uber's loss in the Supreme Court, which we talked about on the last couple of editions of the Wired podcast. He said it was nice to have an update on the Uber story. The only gripe that they have is that the question of how Uber will be able to pay for it and whether this means ride prices will be hiked or Uber drivers will have less flexibility. He's, um, they say they don't expect anything to change um, and that the cost will be put onto the customer if workers have to be paid more fairly. Um, but there's a big issue with Uber with pay disparity and pay redistribution, which needs to be addressed. So this isn't the case of a company not being able to pay its drivers. It's a case of it choosing not to, they argue. Thanks very much for your email. Podcast.wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch with the show. Let us know what you think of the slightly tweaked format hopefully going into a bit more depth on the stories with something that you enjoyed but do let us know podcast at wired.co.uk that's it for this week we'll be back again same time next week have a good one bye-bye bye bye, bye. bye.